great privilege to be here this morning and to be able to share in this service and to be able to minister the Word of God. And I'm especially thankful for the fact that it is your missionary weekend and we are called to lift our eyes and to look beyond our normal situations and circumstances and look at the world at large and to see what God is doing and then our part in that divine plan and work through the missionaries which have been sent through the various partnership relationships and through your own individual calling as you to seek to be servants of Christ in the city of Edinburgh and beyond. Will you turn with me please to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them is evidence of their destruction but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is writing, <coughs> I'm sorry, I've been doing so much traveling and speaking, my throat can't seem to recover, so if you hear me spluttering, please do forgive me or my voice going. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he speaks of living your life in a manner which is worthy of Christ. Actually, a more accurate translation of verse 27 would read like this. Only continue to exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only continue to exercise your citizenship. Now in chapter 3 and verse 20, he uses the word citizenship again. You find this in the Greek. But there it is referenced to the citizenship of belonging to heaven, of heaven itself. So there is this play on the word citizenship. And why is it important? Philippi was a colony of Rome. In the Roman days, when some soldiers came up to retirement, normally 300 of them, together with their families, as retired uh, ex-army, would be packed off to some far-off place, and there they would create a new colony. And that colony would express in every detail Rome. The language would be Latin. 
the culture, the behavior, the idols that were worshipped, the position of the emperor, every aspect of life in that colony would reflect Rome. And so when it comes to citizenship, although you may be present in Philippi, you would be a citizen of Rome. Because Rome shaped your very life and existence. I was born in a former British colony, British Guyana, you can tell by the name. When I went off to school, and I went to school very early, around about four and a half, I learnt first about British history, British geography. My language of learning was the English language, which I'm still struggling with, by the way. And all my thought patterns was actually British, to the point where those of us growing up in a British colony actually always thought of Great Britain as home. And if you know older generations of people from the Caribbean or Guyana, they always spoke of Great Britain as home. In a very little sense, what the British did in creating colonies was what the Romans did with their colonies. So when I came to the UK as a colonial subject, I was coming home because my passport was a British passport. This was in 1959. I was a citizen of Great Britain, although I wasn't born here, and I came home to take up my rightful place. That's how my family saw it. And so when Paul is using this word citizenship, it's very important for us to remember this peculiar context of which he is writing. And he is speaking about those who are residing in Philippi, a Roman colony whose citizenship was Roman, but guess what? They've now become Christian. And as Christians, they now had taken on a new citizenship with a new set of values and a new set of loyalties. And what brought this about? If you look at the start of the church, which is in the book of Acts, you find there how Paul preaching in a simple context, a single individual, led very rapidly to the growth of a church. And that church was the expression of God's kingdom, a new community here on earth within Philippi. And so now Christians, so to speak, had a dual citizenship. They were citizens in their earthly sense of Philippi, particularly if they were Roman subjects and citizens, but now they were also citizens of heaven itself. And that's the context in which Paul is writing. And so he speaks of privileges. So if you look at verse 29, he writes, For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for him as well. 
And I really want to focus on this word privilege. And I want us to look at three privileges. The first is the privilege of being a servant of Christ. Secondly, the privilege of suffering for Christ. And thirdly, the privilege of serving Christ. So, the privilege of being a servant of Christ. In verse 1, he writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So, immediately he addresses at the very start of this epistle what it is to be a servant. And as you probably all know, the word here for servant is the word bond slave. Now, remember the Roman Empire and the status of slaves. You had Roman citizens, but you also had an awful lot of slaves. And slaves were regarded as human tools. They were essentially worthless. They were of no value except their value was in the service that they did for their master. And so to be a slave was to be at the very bottom of society. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, most of the early Christians of the churches of the day were not the high, the mighty, the lofty ones. They were those who existed very much at the bottom of the pile. And amongst them would have been slaves. So Paul is now describing himself as a bond servant. But you say, where is the privilege? The privilege of believing in him. But actually, if you read the Old Testament, say 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 53, it was a title of honor. To be a servant of the king was a title of honor. So there is a privilege now of being a servant of Jesus Christ our heavenly king, our eternal king, our matchless king. And what is denoted in this term, bond slave? Do you know, if you read the books of Leviticus, you know, Exodus, to the Deuteronomy, you find there the conditions of being a slave. And there's an interesting tradition that after a slave had served their time and there were time limits in the Old Testament to slavery, some slaves were so attached to their owners that they never wanted to be free. And so they would go to their owner and say, I don't want to leave you. And the owner did something very special. He says, all right then, you want to stay with me? This is what I'm going to do to you. He would lead them to the doorpost and he would take... Uh, an awl and with a hammer and he would take the lobe of their ear and then he would drive the awl into their ear and through the, the doorpost and whilst he was doing this they would say the following words I love my master I will not go out free so now the slave is bound to the master on the basis of love. And so now, this relationship is a relationship of love. So what Paul is actually saying here, 
as he looks at this privilege of being a servant, he recognizes that there is now a new relationship between he and his God. When he became a Christian, he was now bound to his God. The Christians at Philippi, when they took that step of following Christ, they were now bound to Jesus. And there were four elements here in being bound. There was absolute obedience. Can you think of a slave who disobeys the master? There was absolute service. You exist only to serve. There is absolute humility. There's the master and there's yourself. You can never think of yourself higher. And there's an absolute loyalty. Everything the master requires of you, that will you do. But note, this one slave is based on love. This relationship is a love relationship. So Paul speaks of himself as being a living tool of Jesus Christ. So there is this immense privilege of actually belonging to Christ, of serving Christ, of being God's servant, of being Christ's servant. So as he writes now to the Christians at Philippi, as he recognizes this immense privilege of believing in Jesus, means now that he is now a servant of Jesus. He's a bond slave of Jesus, bound to Jesus on the basis of love. But you know, he goes on to recognize that in this privilege, it's not just a new relationship that is involved but there is also a new life that has to be expressed. And so, again, in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants, bond slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Why does he say, in Christ Jesus? We are here in Edinburgh. I live in Pusey, in Wiltshire, in the west of England. When he's actually using the term in, en, in Hebrews, in the Son, en huios, here is en Christus Jesu. He's saying, my life is in Christ. My sphere, my existence, my belonging is in Christ. He is my geography. He is my territory. He is my country. He is my continent. All that I am is wrapped up in him and cannot be separated from him. So this citizenship of which he is describing has to do with the start of a new relationship that now it manifests itself in a new life as he lives out his life in Christ this came through the preaching of the gospel the application of grace and salvation and this gospel brought new life and with it a new sphere of living 
And so now there is a life that is different. Only live out your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We look at this and we say, yes, we know it. We've experienced it. But consider the implications of this. I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about the period in Great Britain, particularly England, but it affected Scotland as well, between 1775 and 1835. And you say, why on earth would anyone want to study that period? There had been a revolution in France. It had been a disaster. The aristocracy found that they lost their heads. A revolution ensued. And that revolution came very close to being exported to these islands. Because, you see, at that stage, these islands were so utterly corrupt, it was unbelievable. It was ripe for judgment. And just as it, when it seemed that revolution would come, God raised up two men, Wesley and Whitfield. And these two men began to preach. And Wesley on his horse rode up and down Great Britain. You know, right at the end, this was he said, I've killed my horse and I have nothing to ride on. Do you know what his horse was? His body. And so together they preached the word. And God brought about an evangelical revival. And so this land was transformed. There's a book by J. Wesley Brady, England Before and After Wesley. I have a dear friend called Herb Schlossberg. He wrote a book called The Silent Revolution. And he looked at England before Wesley. And then what happened after Wesley? And how England was transformed, Scotland, these islands. And then that transformation went around the world. There's a secular work out called The Tipping Point. Yeah, I don't know if any of you have ever, ever read this. On how societies change. And in this secular book, the author looks to Wesley. And he notes how the preaching of Wesley brought about a transformation of society that affected all our institutions, whether it be employment laws, whether the end of slavery, whether it do with capitalism and monetary controls, whether it do with the manner of life that we live, you know, like cleaning, cleanliness is next to godliness. And he argues that the tipping point was when a man preached the gospel of salvation. And this land was changed. And here in Scotland, whether it be a Matheson, whether it was a Bruce, whether it was a McShane, and you have all your great preachers. And then the missionaries that went out. A single person goes to Korea, and the Church of Korea is born. They traverse the oceans, and they bring the gospel to new situations, new communities, new societies. And today the church is vibrant across Africa, across Latin America, places like Indonesia, China. 
It all started from a very small beginning. And just as Paul preached in Philippi, and a new colony was created within that physical colony, which in turn began to spread wider and wider, further and further afield. So Wesley and Whitfield did the same. And after them, other men, my favorite is Spurgeon. I'm a great reader of Spurgeon. Spurgeon preaches in one place, and London is transformed. I was baptized in East London Tabernacle, and that's how I got to know your former minister, Derek Prime, who used to come and preach there. And of East London Tabernacle, it was said, there was a minister who was a student of Spurgeon. For 30 years, there was a baptismal service every month except once when the pipes froze up. And then the gospel went from London across the world. Myers and Arthur did it. Brothers and sisters preach the gospel and support those who preach the gospel. I'm the international director of an aid agency, but I tell you this. It is not social service that brings about transformation of societies. It's the gospel. It is not climate change or political involvement or engagement. It is the gospel. And if ever we lose sight of this basic truth that the gospel brings new life, the gospel of salvation, and we don't preach it, then we will die. Evangelize or perish. You have those words over Cliff College, an institution set up by, as a result of Wesley, a Wesleyan college, Methodist college. And so missionary work is not just important but vital for the church because you see the church is mission a missionless church is a Christless church because Christ in himself was mission he brought new life and so he calls his people to bring new life where they are and to go out to the utmost parts of the world and today where new churches exist, we are called now to partner with them, to work with them, just as Paul is partnering with Philippi, the church that he started. So we are called to continue this dynamic relationship. So here is the privilege of being a servant, a new relationship, a new life in Christ that brings about transformation. But there's also a new identity. A citizen who is a citizen of heaven. Here's the tension. The relationship between being a citizen of earth and being a citizen of heaven. A citizen of Philippi with his Roman context and now belonging to Christ, this new identity. And so Paul says, you've got to live now a, a life, the manner of life that is worthy of Christ. So the Christian community is meant to demonstrate to the world the life of Christ. Why? Because she is the embodiment of Christ. She is Christ in this society. 
She lives and breathes a heavenly oxygen, so to speak, and a heavenly life. She is that light of which Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 15, to shine as stars, or as Jesus said, a light that is on a hill. She is to be healing to those who are wounded and broken. She is to be deliverance to the oppressed. She is to be peace in a war-toned and conflict-ridden world. She is there to bring healing and wholeness, beauty and grace. So we come to verse 2, those lovely words, Pastor, that you mentioned earlier. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace just doesn't mean God's favor. In the Hebrew, it had a peculiar meaning. It means also beauty. So a truly gracious person is a person of great beauty, not externally, but in their character, in their lives. I think as we grow older, we don't grow more ugly, we actually grow more beautiful. You think about it. Because our relationship with Jesus Christ makes us to shine. We see the physical wrinkles, but look beyond and to see the light of Christ shining out at radiant, a truly beautiful person. is a person in their old age reflecting only Christ, their Lord, that altogether beautiful one. And when we come to peace, Irene, shalom in the Hebrew, which means total well-being, a person that is integrated within themselves. They're made whole. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. So when Paul writes now about having this grace and this peace, he's thinking of a Christian community that is reflecting the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And you know, that is what mission is. It's not so much just what we say, but what we are. And what we say becomes an expression of what we are. Our words are words of life, because the life of Jesus is in us. Our words are words of healing, because we have been healed by Jesus. They are light, because Jesus turned our darkness into light. So the privilege of being a servant. It is glorious to be a servant of Christ our Lord. But note secondly, the privilege, not just of believing in him, in verse 29, but also of suffering for him. So the privilege of suffering. Go back to Philippi. This Roman colony... What problems would it have posed for the Christian community? There would have been a political problem. And the political problem had to do essentially with loyalty. Because if you were a Roman citizen, you were loyal to the Roman state. 
Now, you are a Christian. You are seen to have a dual loyalty. You have Christ as your absolute master. He is your Lord and he's your king. He's not Caesar. You see, the point about a Roman colony and state was this. Caesar was not just king and lord, he was also God. So when you transferred your allegiance over to Jesus, who is now your Lord and your God, you are now in a state of high treason. Let me illustrate it this way. Take me. My name is Patrick Sukdale, but I have another name, Shamsher Khan, and that gives it away. I'm a convert from Islam. So when I, Shamsher Khan, took the decision to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, in the Islamic religion, I took not a religious decision, I took a political decision. I transferred my allegiance. So in classical Islam, and I've written a book about it, it's downstairs, the apostasy law in Islam, I committed the crime of high treason. And that carries the death penalty. So Muslims have said to me, look, in a country, you commit high treason, it carries death penalty. You, when you rejected Islam, you actually changed your allegiance. That was a political act, and so you should die. And that's why the death penalty exists in Islam. So you see, this idea of changing loyalties is hugely important. And so the Christians that did Philippi would have found a political problem revolving around loyalty. But there's a second problem, which was a legal problem. You see, they had to accept Nero as God. That was the law. You only have to think of Polycarp of old, one of my favorites. These four score and four years have I served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How can I deny him? What was he asked to do? Take a pinch of incense and put it in some fire so that he would acknowledge Caesar as God. I have a friend who is Japanese. He trained as a kamikaze pilot during the Second World War. And I used to say to him, by the way, he never practiced his craft. Why did you want to go and get in a plane and kill yourself? He said, ah, but you don't understand emperor worship. Every street corner, we had a little fire, and we had to go and put incense in that fire to show our loyalty to the emperor. That was our duty, and it was the law. So not to do it was to break the law, and that carries death penalty, as it was in the case of Polycarp. So the Christians of Philippi has a, a political problem, they have a legal problem, and then they've got a third, which has to do with an ideology, an ideological position that led to false accusation. The religion of the Romans centered around idol worship. So there was a physical idol that you went and uh, put some offering to. When they become Christians, our God is an invisible God. So the Christians were actually accused of atheism. They were atheists 
because they rejected a physical God. So you see now the ideological problem that they have. And so now they're falsely accused of being atheists and therefore they should be punished. Now if that wasn't bad enough, they had a fourth problem which had to do with morality. Because the Roman Empire was pretty wicked, particularly in terms of sexual morality. It was pretty licentious. So now they become Christian, they practice a new way of life, and they have the communion, and then they've got men and women together. And how would they be understood? They have rejected the old world. They have a new life. So Paul is saying, your manner of life, because he realizes this tension they're going to have with conflicting moralities. And so there is this dilemma of living in a pagan society where the political, the legal where you're accused falsely because of ideology, where the morality systems are different, but then there's a, a fifth problem. And this was satanic. Because if you look at the start of this church in Philippi in Acts 16, and verses 16 to 24, you find a satanic conflict, <coughs> a slave girl. And Paul delivers the slave girl and ends up in prison. And so the satanic is present, and that's why Paul uses the word in the context here of adversaries. He recognizes that the opposition is not just human beings, but Satan himself. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual powers in the heavenlies. There is a spiritual battle taking place in Philippi, and he recognizes that. So, being citizens of Philippi, being citizens of heaven, now carries a cost. And they're going to suffer for it. And so he says, but you know, it's a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ, to bear the reproach of Christ. We look at this, and we look at Paul himself, because he is in chains, and he uses the word chains here. And remember that not only is he writing to the church at Philippi that is experiencing suffering, he himself is experiencing suffering. Why? He is there in the with the Praktorian guards. There's a chain on his wrist, and at the other end is a Roman soldier. Day and night he is chained and awaiting the possibility of death. That's the context. Paul, a prisoner, in prison, chained, perhaps living in his own accommodation, but still a prisoner, writing to a church in chains, and he speaks about the privilege of suffering. We look at suffering and how do we understand it? If we take the Boxer Rebellion in China, 126 missionaries from one mission agencies were killed, thousands of Chinese believers died. 
Then we move on, say, 40 years later, 1947, and then we find Mao coming, communism descending, all the missionaries expelled from China. There was an air of despair. All was lost. And yet today, can we say all is lost? With the rise of the Chinese church, one of the most powerful churches in the world, or 1979, February, Khomeini comes to power. He arrives into Tehran. The missionaries leave. Elders of churches, evangelical churches, leave. Everyone predicts the end of Christianity in Iran. Today, between a half a million to a million converts from Islam to Christianity. Algeria, between 1990 and the year 2000, a brutal civil war based on radical Islam. A hundred thousand people die. Today, the church is growing rapidly in Algeria. You see, God works out of the pain and out of the suffering. The gospel is advanced, as Italian observed. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs produces new life. In the military context, where I spend a bit of my life, when you're faced with an ambush, what do you do? Do you hide? Do you turn tail and run away? No. In an ambush, you always attack. You attack an ambush. You never stay still and you never, never retreat because you're certain to lose. But in order to survive, you face the ambush and you attack it. And so in the context of suffering, the church does not retreat with all the disasters coming our way whether in the Middle East, whether in Asia or Africa, should the church retreat? I say no. Now is the time to attack and to go forward. It's a basic lesson which we all need to learn. The time for retreat is not now. I know mission agencies are pulling out of the Middle East. They're looking at the deteriorating situations and saying, Time to go. I say it's the opposite. Time to go forward, time to resource, time to strengthen. Because in the instabilities, the spiritual vacuum will be created. And the Lord will work his work of salvation. More Muslims are ever, more than ever, are turning to Christ. In a day of radical Islam, why? Because radical Islam is producing a hunger. And Christ is filling that hunger. In India, militant Hinduism is producing a hunger. In Sri Lanka, militant Buddhism, Theravada, is producing a hunger. And that's why the church is growing. She's not growing in places of ease. In fact, in places of ease like the UK, we are losing. She is growing in the places of great pain. We don't know the future. Paul didn't know. The Epistle of Philippi was written A.D. 62-63. Nero was emperor. What would happen in July 
of AD 64, something appallingly happened. Nero decides to destroy the church, the great fire of Rome, and he makes Christianity an illicit and illegal religion throughout the empire. So one year after Paul wrote the epistle to the Philippians, Christianity became an illegal religion. We don't know the times that we have. I say this of the UK. Do we know how long we've got? If you take the Middle East, January of 2011, I called a conference of Middle Eastern leaders in Cyprus. I was so burdened by events as I saw unfolding, I gave them three military-style briefings on the Middle East and its future. And I remember my last lecture, right at the end, I said to them, supposing you go home next week, your country collapses, what would you do? Would you be prepared? And I saw them smiling and smirking, thinking this man is mad. It's impossible. It can't happen. Within a week, Tunisia fell. Then came Egypt. And one after another, they fell. So early this year, I was brought back to Beirut and addressed all the key evangelical leaders from across the Middle East. A year on, a totally different Middle East. No one can predict what will happen a year from now. Not just the Middle East, our own country, where you can now be arrested for preaching in a street corner in England in an inner city area if some religious communities complain. Or the charity commission can rule you of no public benefit and not give you a charitable status, as they've just done with the exclusive brethren. And we do not know with the progression of marriage and gay laws where it is leading. But brothers and sisters, now is not the time for retreat. We do not know whether next year we may become an illicit religion. But I tell you what, we count it a privilege to suffer for Christ and to preach the gospel of Christ. And we attack the ambush. And so my final point, and I've gone over time, is the privilege of serving Christ. So Paul comes to the fact of being a servant that serves. And just to tie this up very quickly, he says in verse 20, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Then he says again in verse 20, speaking with all boldness, and courage. He says, it's an honor to serve Christ, whether in life or in death. In verse 28, he says, I'm not going to be frightened or intimidated. So we go out into the world to serve Christ, which is an immense privilege, not ashamed of him, wanting to preach him with all boldness, to honor our Lord <coughs> in life or in death, and refuse, refusing to be intimidated or to be frightened. That is our calling, to live for Christ, and if need be, to die for Christ. My last, latest book is a book on martyrdom.
daily readings. Perhaps if I mention one, Pastor George of Nigeria, last year. Pastor George was killed in Nigeria. He and a number number of other pastors were rounded up by radical Muslims. They were told to deny Christ. If they refused, they would be beheaded. Well, so Pastor George says, no, I'm not going to deny Christ. So when he bows his neck and they're about to strike his head off, he lifts up his face and he says to everyone around him, tell my people I died well. I see heavens opened. And with that, he dies. He is beheaded. Tell my people I died well. I want to add to that, tell my people I lived well because I see heavens opened. Brothers and sisters, ours is a glorious task, is it not? The task, the privilege of being servants of such a loving master. The privilege of being able to suffer for him. The privilege of serving him. Thank you.